Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Murky fool, like squirtle and cake boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the word just, not like in justice, but as in just get over it, just ignore it, just deal with it. And I've been thinking about the phrase, stop being so, stop being so squeamish, stop being so difficult, and for God's sake, stop being so sensitive, and how that phrase and those words actually translate to stop being who you are and feeling what you feel, and the ridiculousness of this poor advice. It's about as effective as telling someone to stop being so tall or to stop having green eyes, and it's far more harmful. My guest today is Ted Zeff, Ph.D. He received his doctorate in psychology in 1981 from the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, California. Dr. Zeff has more than 25 years' experience counseling sensitive children and adults. He currently teaches workshops and consults internationally on coping strategies for highly sensitive children and adults. Dr. Zeff is considered one of the world's experts on the trait of high sensitivity and has authored a large number of books, including The Highly Sensitive Person's Survival Guide, The Highly Sensitive Person's Companion, The Strong Sensitive Boy, Raise an Emotionally Healthy Boy. Welcome, Dr. Zeff, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Thank you for having me. By the way, there's another book that I really like called The Power of Sensitivity, where I interviewed 40 people from 10 different countries who were told you're too sensitive, there's something wrong with you. And all these stories internationally show how someone who felt there was something wrong with them overcame that and are very successful. And that's called The Power of Sensitivity. And I definitely want to talk about sort of what are the positive aspects of it and and the powers that someone who is highly sensitive have. And also, um, I think you address in that book, the cultural differences that being a highly sensitive person might be a very different experience, say, in Thailand or China than it might be in North America. Yeah, that's a lot of questions. And I think I'd like to start off first defining for people who aren't familiar with the trait of high sensitivity what it is and and uh, talk about the characteristics, then we can go into some of the other questions you had. That's perfect. That was my plan, too. My, my first question is, let's start with what defines a highly sensitive person. So this was a trait waiting to be discovered. And in the mid-1990s, Elaine Aaron, uh, who's a brilliant psychologist and researcher, came up with the term a highly sensitive person. Um, Before then, people always thought there was something wrong with them if they were different than the majority population. So approximately 20% of the population, or 50 million Americans, have the trait, and it's equal between males and females, although it's harder for men to admit it because of the um, toxic masculinity men have grown up with. But at any rate, people who have the trait have trouble screening out stimuli. They could be easily overwhelmed by noise, crowds, and time pressure. EHSP tends to be very sensitive to pain, the effects of caffeine, and violent movies. HSPs, or highly sensitive people, may also feel very uncomfortable by bright lights, strong smells, and changes in their lives. So... We HSPs experience depth of processing stimuli and are easily over-aroused 
and overstimulated, and we have stronger emotional reactions and are aware of subtle stimuli. Sensory processing sensitivity is not a disorder, but a normal trait. And 30% of HSPs are actually extroverts and can be high sensation seekers. So no two HSPs are the same. So I, I was just going to say go a ahead. point on that, that um, I had read that Dr. Aaron explained that HSPs have been called, you know, shy and timid and inhibited, and as you say, assumed to be introverted. And it seems like these labels completely miss the point. What, what, what would happen in the 1990s? Like, why all of a sudden did the scientific community start to recognize that this was a trait and, and give it a label and start to understand better what it actually encompassed? There actually had been research on people who are um, introverted and shy, but no one ever put it together until Elaine Aaron came up with the term. And, but it is important to recognize that not all HSPs are shy and sensitive. The problem is that if you're an extrovert HSP, I don't say problem, but then you need to be careful because you, you are attracted to stimuli, but then you still get overwhelmed like the typical HSP. And is there something different with an HSP um, individual's nervous system? Yes. And so also going back to the other question, Elaine Aaron's husband, Dr. Art Aaron, is also a, um, a research psychologist. And in the last, I think, between five and seven years, there have been scientific studies using fMRIs showing that literally different parts of the brain light up when HSPs are exposed to certain pictures than non-HSPs. So it's actually a neurological inborn trait. So the brains are actually, the brain mapping is different with someone yes. who's a highly sensitive person and their brain is processing in a different manner. Yeah. So... What Elaine came up with, Elaine Aaron came up with, uh, is DOES, and that stands for, D stands for depth of processing. So HSPs think a lot about the meaning of life. They think before acting. They're not risk takers. They don't just jump into things. HSPs are conscientious. They have a very strong sense of justice and usually have a spiritual path at the center of their life. HSPs are creative and intuitive. So that all goes with the depth of processing, very deep people. And they're not satisfied talking about, oh, trivial subjects. The E in D-O-E-S stands for overstimulated, easily overstimulated. So we'll complain sometimes about stress when stressors may not bother other people. And they have problems with noise, crowds, deadlines. They'll do a poorer performance than a non-HSP when they're being observed. They have an, we have an intense reaction to change, and we absolutely need daily downtime. We can't go nonstop all day long. Um, I always think of once years ago, I was uh, with my dad, who was definitely not an HSP, and um, we're sitting in a room, and a siren went by. It was so loud, I probably jumped out of the chair. And I said, wow, didn't that bother you? He goes, I didn't hear anything. And that's so typical of an example of the difference between an HSP and a non-HSP. The non-HSP can tune things out, and the HSP has a hard time tuning out stimuli. 
So just connected with that, do you believe like the highly sensitive person, are they feeling things and experiencing things that other people don't? Are they feeling them and experiencing them in a, a different way? Yeah, well, so that brings up the next point, which is the emotional responsiveness. We'll tend to cry easily. Men actually on the questionnaire that Elaine Aaron devised to determine who's an HSP, but she also says in the questionnaire, no questionnaire is fully accurate. So if you feel even four or five of the questions, but very deeply, you could also consider yourself an HSP. But the one question that was different for men and women is cries easily. The men refuse to put it down because they've been so humiliated for crying. We feel emotions deeply. The other thing is we understand other people's needs. When I counsel parents of, of elementary school children who are HSPs, they always say if there's a little child in the class who's upset, their child gets very upset. They just totally identify with, uh, it's called mirror neurons. They'll identify with the emotions of someone else. And they also want to help all the time. But we're also highly responsive to feedback, especially positive feedback. Our feelings are hurt more easily than non-HSPs. We tend to be gentle and have polite speech. And the S in DOES stands for sensitive to subtle stimuli. So we're going to notice details. So if we're in an um, auditorium, the HSP will notice where all the exits are right away. We'll frequently we'll want to sit near the aisle. So being sensitive to stimuli, we enjoy the art. We need less medication. We do startle easily, as I mentioned, sensitive to caffeine and pain. And we need our downtime. And a really good one that HSPs likes is being alone in nature. So being in a very quiet environment where there's a lot of nature around, where you can go for walks, trees, the flowers, the grass. To go into one of the other questions you had about the difference culturally is... I'm going to interrupt you for one second because I want to, I want to go back to something you said about the um, mirroring of the neurons, the mirror neurons that fire in an HSP, because I think that's such a critical element for people to understand who are not an HSP, that the other child is... Um, seeing a classmate upset or crying or very happy or whatever the, the intense emotion might be, that the child with HSP, it's not just that they are more sympathetic. Um, and so they are sort of um, noticing it and then reacting to it. They really are feeling the emotion that the other child is feeling, that they have neurons and their nervous system starts to fire in a way that mirrors it. So they really are physically sharing the experience. And I think that's such a critical element for people to understand who are not an HSP because it's not an experience that they experience and it's such an important distinction. Absolutely, Ellie. That, that is an important distinction. Now, you could be a non-HSP and be very empathetic and there'll be children who will feel badly who are non-HSPs if another child in the elementary school classroom is upset but it's deeper for the HSP and literally they're picking up the other child's energy. And, and I'm wondering if that's also connected to the aspect of not being able to watch, like, say, a violent movie, because that HSP is also experiencing the, the physical response of what they're watching in their body. 
Exactly. I'll never forget when I was a child going to the movies with some friends, some other boys, and there were some really violent scenes, and the other boys were going, oh, wow, look at that. And I'm, isn't that cool? And I remember, like, looking away. They didn't know I was looking away from the screen and going, yeah, it's really cool. I, I, it, would, it would just totally upset me. I remember once, what was it? It was um, Peter and the Wolf. It was a, um, a record we had. Um, I forgot, was it Tchaikovsky who did it? And in it, the wolf eats some other animal. And it was so upsetting to me. And I'll never forget my parents going, oh, it's just a little um, song, you know, don't worry about it. But it was upsetting, the violence. And we, again, it, you know, we just take in that negative energy. That's why I tell HSPs all the time, try not to watch the news, stay away from violent movies, watch things that are uplifting because you're going to take that energy in and especially at night before you go to sleep. Um, I used to teach classes on healing insomnia. So in my book, The Highly Sensitive Person Survival Guide, I have a whole chapter on healing insomnia for sensitive people. And um, it's so important that in the evening, for at least three hours before you go to sleep, you turn off all electronic equipment. You don't watch anything on the computer, TV, movies, and you go inward. You can journal write. You can um, read spiritually uplifting books, but you need to get yourself into a peaceful state. Otherwise, when you go to sleep at night, you're taking that energy in with you, and you can't get to stage, this fourth stage of the sleep. You can't get to the deep sleep, stage three and four, where your immune system kicks in if you're agitated when you go to sleep. So that's very important. It's another just little... And, and why, uh, is, why are HSPs more prone to insomnia? You know, I think... Now, it's interesting for myself because I'm having an interesting uh, situation. When I was younger, in school and even in college, I had severe insomnia because of all the stress. And again, we react deeper to everything. So we're reacting deeper to the stress in the daytime. So it's hard for the mind to turn off. Well, if, if you could tune out all of your daily stress, it's easier to go to sleep. But once I started getting my doctorate and learning techniques, actually I did my doctoral dissertation on the psychological and physiological effects of meditation and the physical isolation tank on type A behavior. Physical isolation tank, it's not so popular now, but it used to be very popular where you can actually go into this tank of water and lie there and it cuts out all your stimuli and you go to a very deep place. And I had experiments with people who went into the tank and they came out just feeling deeply relaxed. And the same with the meditators if they got into a deep state of meditation. So it's so important for HSPs to do something deeply relaxing before sleep because they have a hard time. They, they just absorb the energy again. So when I interrupted you many minutes ago, um, I think you were going to tell us a little bit about the cultural distinctions between being a highly yes. sensitive person in, in North America versus some of the other countries. Yeah, and please ask as many questions. Your questions are spectacular, and it really makes it so much better than I'm just, rather than me just giving a lecture. So please keep asking questions Thank on everything you. I said. So 
the values of the American culture do not hold sensitivity in high regard. Men should be competitive and unemotional, while women are supposed to be able to have a successful career, still take care of the family. Therefore, millions of HSPs believe there's something inherently wrong with them for not being able to live up to the accepted mores of today's society, which, don't forget, 80% of the population are non-HSPs. So, by the way, I, I love this one study that shows that infant baby boys are more emotionally reactive than infant baby girls. But by the time a boy reaches the age of four or five, he's learned to repress every emotion except for anger, because anger is the only emotion that boys and men are allowed to express. When a little boy who's like three or four cries, he'll hear from other boys, parents, other adults, what's wrong with you, a little sissy, what are you, a little girl, boys don't cry. Uh, if they have a normal fearful reaction to a new situation, come on, be a man, suck it up. And so that's why, that's why males frequently have learned to repress all their emotions, why they don't go to doctors, why they die of heart attacks sooner than women. They're told never to ask for help, never express their fear, never express sadness, all normal human reactions. And thank God, lately they're talking about toxic masculinity and people are starting to confront that because that's what, in the American society, the males are brought up believing, and it's just terrible. Well, and I'm thinking, too, as a highly sensitive boy in our society, when you're little, you, you have a choice to make, right? You can either pretend, um, or you could do even worse, maybe, which is to block or try to block off, you know, put a barrier up um, between your sense, your sensory perception, and then your experience of it, right? Like, that it, if it's something that isn't acceptable, and it's uncomfortable, that one alternative would be to try to block it. And that seems like a very unhealthy, even though very logical choice for a little boy. You know what I tell in my book, The Strong Sensitive Boy, anyone who has a sensitive boy, any parent or if it's your grandchild or you know someone, my book is really important for helping that boy to grow up in a way where he'll become a confident man. And in one of the many, many hundreds of um, suggestions I have is parents should tell boys who are sensitive, you know, you have to use discrimination when to do what, and you let the boy know that it's totally normal to express your fear, your sadness, your, your whatever the emotion is, but if you do it in an environment where you know other, even teachers uh, would humiliate you for doing it, other kids, then you just don't do it. So you have to unfortunately play a role in society sometimes, but at home, this is the correct way to be, and you could be whoever you are. And what are so some? I also oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So let's just talk about. So, you know, even though so many sensitive people are told, "What's wrong with you? Don't be so sensitive." If there were more HSPs, we'd probably live in a healthier world with less war, less environmental devastation, and terrorism. It's the HSP whose sensitivity creates restrictions on smoking, pollution, and noise. And even though they're told we're too sensitive. The truth is the proliferation of insensitive values 
has created a world on the brink of disaster. And our only hope for saving the planet is by being sensitive and kind toward all sentient beings. So we have to have a balance in society between, yes, we do need the warrior who needs to, you know, join the army and the CEOs, but there has to be a balance with sensitive people, sensitive adults to um, balance the, the way it is now in society, which is we're on a path of total destruction. So here's the interesting point. For the book, The Strong Sensitive Boy, I interviewed sensitive men in five different countries. So it's so cultural. And the men I interviewed in five countries, the sensitive men who were raised in India, Thailand, and most from Denmark stated they were never or rarely teased as a boy for their sensitivity, while the sensitive men from the U.S. were frequently teased as a boy for their sensitivity. So I also tell parents to let their children know, gee, if you were raised in a different country, you would love your sensitivity. I remember there was a man from Thailand where they considered being sensitive. The Thai people are very gentle, loving people. And because this boy was so sensitive, he was always elected president of his class. So you have a whole totally different uh, way of, uh, of self-esteem growing up depending on the country you live in. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say you had mentioned one of the attributes of a highly sensitive person is they do make a good employee. And I was thinking in our culture, um, being effective in the workplace is something we actually do value. Um, Even though we might not value sensitivity, we might not realize we are valuing that person's sensitivity. What is it about the highly sensitive person that does make them uh, typically a good employee? I I want to talk about work in a minute, but I like to finish... Um, a couple other little points. Sure, sure, sure. I have have a lot of important information on work. Also, age is a factor. Children and older people are more deeply affected by overstimulation. I'm very highly sensitive, but when I was a teenager and young adult, I remember going to these loud parties with music blaring and uh, staying out late at night, and it didn't affect me that much. So age is a factor in the sensitivity, although I know also I've had many clients who, teenagers and young adults who still couldn't take, you know, going to a bar and listening to loud music and a big crowded scene. Do you think there are people that aren't realizing that that is what is affecting them? You know, that especially when they're kids or they're teenagers and they're trying to participate in the typical rituals of that age group, that they might not understand what aspects of their experience are affecting them. Like maybe they think like, oh, I'm just not a friendly person or, oh, I don't like to, you know, go out with my friends rather than realizing that it's the environment, the overstimulation of the environment that's impacting them. Exactly. And that's why I'm thrilled that my first book I wrote in 2003, The Highly Sensitive Person Survival Guide, and very little people knew about it. By now, um, Elaine Aaron's book, The Highly Sensitive Person, has sold over 2 million copies. My books have sold over 100,000 or in nine languages. Uh, been translated to Elaine's is like something like uh, 12 or 13 languages. So all over the world, it has so changed. We had uh, last year a meeting with the leaders from all over the world uh, come to the Bay Area. And in each country now, it seems like there's, there's large groups of highly sensitive people and seminars 
I've given talks in Israel, Holland, Denmark, um, Australia, uh, Norway. So it's interesting. It's just it's booming every day. And one thing, people, I want to caution people is that now that it's so popular, everyone's trying to cash in on it. And there are a lot of people who don't really know uh, the correct information, and they'll have these YouTube videos or even writing books that's totally off the mark. So I'd say it's very important to be very discriminating what you watch and what you believe. You know, things from Elaine Aaron, myself, Jacqueline Strickland, some of the people who've been certified on Elaine Aaron's website, she has people who've been certified, counsel people, so you have to be very careful who you get information from. What do you think? So, is, oh, go ahead. go ahead. I was just going to mention, you know, it's so easy to get into the negative part about it. So I want to talk about the positive HSP trait. HSPs are very conscientious and loyal. And I know myself, I, even when I was in college, if I had a paper due, it'd be done a week before I'd study for my finals, you know, days before I never did an all nighter. Uh, I was very loyal. Uh, I've always been loyal my whole life. We could appreciate beauty, art, and music deeper. So we can have a deeper appreciation than non-HSPs. We're very intuitive. We pick up energy, but also we're intuitive with positive energy. And we have deep spiritual experience. We notice potential danger sooner than non-HSPs. I always make a joke. Why don't HSPs ever get Lyme disease? Because they'll feel the tick crawling on their skin before it bites them. Um, we are creating the positive changes in the environment. We're very concerned about the humane treatment of animals. We're kind, compassionate, understanding. We're natural counselors, teachers, and healers. You'll also see most of the artists and creative people are HSPs. And in the, the movie, which I highly recommend, sensitivethemovie.com, uh, there's an award-winning movie where the director interviewed HSP researchers from all over the world. And it, it's a fantastic movie. I was one of the people interviewed, but that's not important. But they interviewed at least 20 people. And it's just a great movie for teaching non-HSPs rather than sitting down and reading a book. Highly sensitive to movie.com. And it's a great way for anybody learning everything about the trait. And it's very well done. The director uh, worked for Disney and Oprah Winfrey. So it's a award-making movie. Um, we have an enthusiasm for life and can experience love and joy more deeply when we're not feeling overwhelmed. I was going to chime in that not all HSPs are as diligent as you, and some actually procrastinate and pull all-nighters, so that's a, a good quality that you have. Um, one of the other aspects that I thought was so interesting, because it's such a small thing seemingly, and yet I think it's so important that Dr. Erin mentioned as one of the qualities is good manners. And she gives an example about, um, you know, the HSP is aware of where the grocery cart is in the grocery store and whether or not it's blocking the aisle. And although, yeah, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say that um, not all HSPs are polite. Most tend to be, but you can get an HSP who's so self-absorbed with their sensitivity to everything. They're going around telling people, turn that music down, uh, uh, close the blind. I don't like that bright light. Put this here. So when you make changes, it's very important 
that you don't do it in a blaming way and you do it in a way that is very gentle. The HSP should also have a prepared definition of what it is when you're asking someone for changes. Like, let's say there's someone in your office who's too noisy. You could say, well, you know, I have this um, trait where I can't tune out noise, so I'd really appreciate it if we work out a compromise where, you know, you turn the radio down or a time you can listen to it when I'm not here. Very important for HSPs to say no to stimulating activities and meeting their own needs rather than going along with a crowd. So if you're with a group of people or your family and you're overstimulating, you've had it, you need downtime, oh, come on, we're going to go out to eat now. No, I want to go home and just be quiet. You have to speak up. Of all the most important qualities, speaking your truth, speaking up, is very important, but HSPs have a hard time saying it because they've been taught there's something wrong with them and they don't want to feel different. So how do you know if someone in your family is an HSP? Well, Elaine Aaron came up with a test. And if you're saying yes to most of the questions, you're likely an HSP. So you can take the test. It's in her book. It's in, it's in my book, The HSP Survival Guide. It's on her website, uh, Elaine Aaron's website, hsperson.com. So anyone could just take the, the HSP test. You can even just Google HSP test. Um, and, and, and what would have, what would be it. some of the, like, to even make you think that they maybe were to then take the step of taking the test, like that parents can realize that maybe a child um, or even a sibling, an, an older person, their siblings, um, could realize that some behaviors are indicative of being an HSP. Yeah, all the things we've already talked about, which is sensitivity to noise, and parents know right away if their child is sensitive to noise. They don't like uh, a label on their back, on their shirt. They just have a hard time with changes in the environment. One sibling will go, oh, great, we're going somewhere else. No, wait, this is too hard for me. I can't take any more. I don't want to go to this event. The parents will know, but anyone can just take the test. Yeah, because it seems like, you know, prior to this being labeled, so many of those behaviors you just described are like, oh, you're just being picky. Um, or, you know, you're just tired. And so you're being cranky. Um, rather than realizing that there is a, a really different experience going on for the child. Yeah, they have a different neurological system. And that's so important for parents to realize. That's why they should take the parents should take the test about the highly sensitive child. So, but, you know, we also don't have to just bury ourselves in the sand and not go out, but we have to compromise. So, for example, you go to a movie, but not like on a Saturday night for a blockbuster. You might want to go in an afternoon, weekday afternoon when it's quiet. You can go to restaurants before the dinner rush. Um, you, can do, you can work around that, that whole issue. But it's also important for the HSP to have a daily routine because if you get up and right away you start, have a donut and a cup of coffee and run to work, you're going to be off center. So I tell all my HSPs to sit and meditate and become grounded or whatever works for you, reading a little peaceful book, um, a relaxation tape in the morning, and again in the evening doing calming things, especially before you go to bed. 
And with your patients, what are some of the typical or the primary challenges that they'll come in to see you about, either at in their relationships or in their daily lives? Like by the time that this HSP um, has grown up um, from a, a child having highly high sensitivity, um, what typically are the experiences that are challenging for an adult? They feel there's something wrong with them. And um, they don't feel good about who they are and empowering them and letting them know that there's nothing wrong with them and speaking up and not putting up with situations that don't work. So that actually brings us to a good point about relationships. And um, so, as I mentioned, some HSPs are actually high sensation seekers, but it's, it's a small minority compared to the introverted ones. But let's say there's a relationship and you're a, an introverted HSP and your partner is a non-HSP who loves stimulating activities. So challenges will arise. So you have to compromise. That's the only way to deal with it. Um, and very easily, you know, let's say the HSP comes home from work and the other person wants to right away engage in high conversation and they'll feel offended if the partner says, oh, I, I can't talk right now. I, I just had a hard day at work and I just need to be alone, totally alone right now. So you have to, they have to realize that it's not personal, the non-HSP, but that the HSP needs downtime. They need alone time. And um, they have to constantly compromise. So let's say a non-HSP wants to go rock climbing. The HSP may not want to go rock climbing. It may be too overstimulating, too fearful. So you could both go to the park together. The HSP can uh, take a little walk in the park or read a book while the other one does their stimulating activity. They can go to a party in separate cars. And after an hour or so, the HSP says it's too much, they can leave. So you're always looking to compromise in that relationship and always work on knowing that non-HSP has to understand that the HSP is not offending them when they don't want, let's say, I remember there was one client and she um, was HSP and her husband used to like to come from behind and give her a hug and she would just jump up there, don't ever do that. And he would be offended. But the more the non-HSP reads information about it, uh, about the trait, watches the movie, the highly sensitive person, the movie, and learns about it and accepts that it's not personal, then the easier the relationship will be. Another but element. Also, oh, go ahead. Uh -huh. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, go I ahead. I just want to say, also two HSPs together, there could be problems because they could, they're in solitude too much. They don't go out. They're overreacting the sensitivities in each other and to the environment. I remember I went to India with an HSP friend of mine and India is probably the most overstimulating country. And we spent so much of the time talking about the noise and the pollution and, you know, that could be a, another little trap. It's so important for a non-HSP and an HSP partners not to blame the other ones for having a different temperament. 
I think that's important in every partner relationship, right? If we could all just realize we're in this world very differently, we experience things differently, we have different reactions to things, and that's okay. Um, one of the things you made me think of when you were talking about two HSPs traveling together um, is another of the elements that you mentioned that's typical of an HSP is the difficulty in making decisions quite often. So I'm just sort of imagining, you know, two HSPs traveling and trying to trying to make decisions on the fly. Um, why is it more difficult at times for an HSP to make a decision? Well, actually, I have a whole um, blog about traveling as an HSP on my website, which is, by the way, drtedzeff.com. And what happens is, let's say it's traveling, um, if you're not an HSP, I mean, I have a friend who is the most non-HSP person who travels all over the world all the time, and the sky, nothing ever bothers him. So he'll, he'll um, oh, I'm going to Peru. I'm going to um, Vietnam. And it doesn't even think twice about noise in a hotel room, about dangers, about getting sick. But an HSP has to be very careful because, you know, the stimulation. And we also, you know, we, deep, we process things deeply. We, we notice potential danger. So it takes a while. I mean, you should see me when I'm, I'm traveling and I'm planning a trip. I spend hours and hours reading all the reviews of every possible place I would stay at, uh, safe, good places to eat, um, how to get around the city so I don't feel overwhelmed. It's amazing. Nowadays with Google, you can actually Google in a foreign city um, how to get from on what bus from one place to another. So that's why it takes so long. So let's get back to Go ahead. No, Let's no. get back to work. You had a question about HSPs as employees. Okay. But before we do, because you made me think of something else. Yes. Um, I remember sure. when my son was young and I had purchased the book, um, Raising the Spirited Child, and my brother who lives in China was visiting and the book was on the table and he was reading it. And, you know, he's quiet for a long time. And then all of a sudden he puts it down and he's like, oh, my God, that's me. He was reading the part about um, transitions or going to new places and talking about how for a child who's highly sensitive, you need to prepare them for it, that you need to, that those those changes are very difficult for them. So they need to know what to expect and exactly what you're saying, like the travels guide, know what are they going to eat? You know, how are they going to get there? What's it going to be like? What should they wear? And that image just sticks with me. My brother's realization, you know, 55 years later, um, that that was him and had someone told him that when he was five that you know there was nothing wrong with him it wasn't this weakness it wasn't a deficit but that he was just one of these highly sensitive people that just needed a little extra prep work when he was going to do something new yeah and so by the way sensitive children who are raised in an environment where the parents are very accepting and uh, of their trait and, and supportive of them uh, actually turn out just as well emotionally, if not better. And in, let's say the school and their friends, they're totally accepted. Um, they actually turn out as well, if not more emotionally uh, stable than non-HSPs. But the difficult thing is that if a HSP is raised in an environment where they're humiliated for having the trait at home and at school and by teachers and uh, friends, 
in the neighborhood. Um, they're going to turn out possibly with uh, PTSD and severe trauma they have to work on. One good recent study showed, this is very good, because we absorb things deeply, interpositive intervention for sensitive children who are in a difficult situation, they improved way better than non-HSPs because they're so open to all the positive interaction. Explain that so, in a little more depth. What, what kind of experience would that be, if you don't mind? study, I think it was 12-year-old girls, and they were in a um, kind of an environment where they would be humiliated or um, at-risk children uh, from the families they lived in. And sensitive children um, overcame it much easier. Their environment, they were much more open to all the positive intervention techniques and just even knowing that they had the trait of sensitivity made them feel better. While the non-HSPs, because they weren't as open on a deep level to even the positive parts. So don't forget, we're open, more open to the, the, you know, to the negative when someone gives us a bad time, but we're also open to the positive. So with work, actually, the, the people I've interviewed for the study on... Um, sensitive men and the power of sensitivity that people who I uh, interviewed from 10 different countries had a wide variety of jobs. And my feeling, HSPs can work in any environment, virtually any environment, if their boss, their coworkers, and the physical aspects of the environment are suitable to them. So, I mean, we can have, you know, all types of people. Um, but very important for HSPs to work in a quiet, calm, and supportive environment. They have to accept the work limitations and not compare themselves with others. But it's very difficult for sensitive people to work under time pressure for an inconsiderate boss or with difficult colleagues. It's also difficult for an HSP to even work a 40-hour week, let alone more. So when you're working in these competitive environments, and they want you to work overtime, it doesn't work for HSPs usually. 95% of the HSPs I surveyed said stress at work affects their physical or emotional health. So in my book, I have things people can do during the day to calm themselves down, uh, take meditation breaks, do uh, deep, slow abdominal breathing, explore changes in the job schedule, beginning work later, working from home, which has been wonderful for HSPs, um, changing your hours, reducing the hours. And this is very important. If you're working in a stressful job that can't be modified, examine your beliefs and values as to why you continue working in a difficult situation. Investigate new job possibilities or that are more well-suited to your sensitivity. And what I notice that happens is that HSPs who are told there's something wrong with them in their family recreate their family of origin at work by being in a work situation where bosses telling them they're wrong, their colleagues like their siblings are saying they're wrong, and they'll stay in that environment because they were used to being a victim as a child and they're used to it in a work situation in a... Um, sometimes in a relationship situation. And I'll never forget the person in an apartment who had 
a neighbor who was driving them crazy and they refused to move, um, no matter what I would say, come up with it, even though the person was couldn't even function because of the neighbor, but they were used to being a victim. So it's so important mm-hmm. to empower the HSP. Well, I'm thinking as you're talking, like we're a big suck it up nation, right? Like suck it up, um, you know, just get over it, just try harder, just suffer through it, you know, suffering's good, uh, just toughen up. And that for the HSP, like those messages are just a, a sentence for despair and unhappiness. And I'm wondering if another element in an HSP's um a challenge in, in work may be that it's much more important for them to have a career in a field that is following their passion. I mean, I think that's important Absolutely. for everyone. An but H- An HSP cannot work in an environment where they don't see the importance of the work they're doing. They have to feel a connection to, to something in their heart because if they're just doing mechanical stuff, it doesn't work. I want to give you an example of a man I worked with who was working in a corporation. And he said he was very creative as an HSP. He'd come up with great ideas. He said they didn't want to hear about it. And it was very competitive. And he was always passed over for promotion. He ended up getting a lot of physical problems like migraines, um, ulcers. He had severe insomnia. And finally, he couldn't take it anymore, and he quit the job. I think he was a bookkeeper or an accountant, and he opened up his own business, and all his physical symptoms went away. He made his own hours. He had his own little office that was very calming, and his whole life changed for the positive. There's another person I worked with who was a chef in San Francisco. Any cook, it's a very stressful job anyway, but especially at a upscale restaurant and I, I and he was also falling apart it was it was too hard too stressful and I said you know why don't you quit your job because I can't quit it I have a family and I need the money finally after some time it, it just got to the point he couldn't take anymore so he moved to a rural area maybe about 100 miles away from this big city and he was still worked as a cook but in a little place and He's felt wonderful. So it's so important if you're in a job and you're an HSP and it's not working for you, don't stay in it. Explore other jobs and explore why you continue to stay in a job that's not working. You're making me think of two things. One, just the challenges that may have been for the chef, just with all those smells. Um, I can remember one Christmas when my son was young and we went to a restaurant because our electricity had gone out in, in our whole neighborhood. And I had ordered some, what he found, very smelly mushroom pasta. And he was just literally like, once I put it on the table, what is that smell? You know, and I cannot, and I mean, he was like three or four. I cannot sit at this table. So you know, I had to pack up my dinner. And, and put it away. Um, but he really couldn't. He really couldn't sit at that table. And I think that's such a good lesson for the other 80% of the population. And with the work examples you give that, you know, people really 
the HSP can be the, the leader in this field as far as leading the way for following your truth, um, even if it seems ridiculous to someone else, but that it's very important to acknowledge your personal experience of whatever particular situation you're in and um, be honest about it with yourself and then, as you said, speak up about it and, and stand your ground. Exactly. So I don't know if we have time to touch on sensitive children. Yeah, we do. We have we have a few more minutes, definitely. Yeah. So what happens is when a child starts, let's say, preschool or kindergarten, the parents will say, oh, don't be a baby. Go ahead and join with the other kids. And premature separation for parents is traumatic for sensitive children. So it's very important that the child integrates very slowly into a new classroom when they're little. Um, they have to create a balance for their child between um, letting them have some alone time, but also going out. It doesn't work to screen at sensitive children. They need gentle from discipline because they're so conscientious. The child will hear it in a calm and receptive manner, but not when you're upset with the child. And um, again, I mentioned that the parent has to talk about all the positive aspects of being sensitive to their child. Let them know all the great heroes that are sensitive from, you know, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, the ones who are very compassionate and show them that, you know, you're like the compassionate one. School is very traumatic for sensitive children with all the noise, the bright lights, and parents have to really intervene and make sure the child is safe. And um, it takes extra work for the parent, but they absolutely have to uh, spend time in the classroom with the teacher. If the public school teacher is not open to working with their sensitive child, they should explore alternative schools like Montessori or Steiner or Waldorf. Homeschooling, if possible, is ideal because they thrive in a safe, quiet, less stimulating environment. In terms of friendship, they don't need to be hanging out with uh, 10, 15 other people. Uh, you know, all they need is one good friend. So that's very important. Um, oh, I also want to say with uh, physical exercise is very important for HSPs, but they do not like competitive sports because you imagine the pressure of, let's say someone's playing baseball in right field and a ball's coming to them and 17 other people are watching and they're going to catch the ball. It's not good. So individual sports like swimming, um, uh, going for a walk in nature, bicycling, all that is wonderful. But it's very important for HSPs to do exercise, but ones that are the ideal one is a walk in nature in silence. So that's also very important. And so even the sensitive child needs to do sports, but... If it doesn't work for the competitive ones, they have to feel okay about, you know, what they're doing in terms of, um, you know, playing sports. And I actually encourage um, sensitive children, believe it or not, to learn some form of martial arts as long as the teacher is very sensitive to the child so it will give them self-confidence if they want to do it. Well, yeah, I'm thinking about the team sports, and I hadn't thought about it in this regard as far as the one, another aspect of the highly sensitive child is they're really hard on themselves, right? And they feel bad about actions, and they're aiming for perfection, and then add on to that that they then feel like exactly. they've let their teammates down. 
Um, and it's hard for them to forgive themselves and, and forget that experience. So it's another level of pressure that's on these children. Yeah, and that's a good point you just made up that I didn't mention is that they tend to be perfectionists a lot. And letting the child know there is no right, there is no wrong. But again, they didn't fit in as children. The dad has an important role because a lot of dads don't want to explore what it means for a boy to act differently. And the dads need to see that there's other ways for their son to behave. I'll never forget the dad who said, this parochial school I went to is good enough for me. It's good enough for my son, even though he's getting bullied and humiliated there. And I just said to him, I said, well, it's your choice. You can have your son still go to that school and get humiliated and have a miserable life, or you can look into another school. So uh, the, it's very important because the mom is usually the one who will be more empathetic for the child to make changes, while the dad a lot of times will just say, it was good enough for me. They really need to to look at what masculinity means. And I am so happy that there's all this talk now about toxic masculinity and how uh, detrimental it is for, for men. And that's why dads really need to look into that. And on that note, maybe just again mention, because um, you have books that are focused specifically on that and a website. And as you said, there's so much more information out there on these specific traits that children have had uh, and adults always, but that we haven't recognized as actually being a physical trait that is a different way of um, experiencing your environment and also a different way of your brain operating and your uh, nervous system as well. Exactly. Maybe to, um, again, give the information on your website and where in the books that people might be able to, to take a test on this, and especially if they have boys that they feel might be highly sensitive. Yeah, so my website is D-R-T-E-D, Z as in zebra, E as in Edward, double F as in Frank, dot com. And there's a, lots and lots of information. My books are listed there. If you have a, a sensitive boy, the, absolutely imperative that you read the strong, sensitive boy. Um, in my book, The Highly Sensitive Person Survival Guide, I have the um, HSP test. You can go to Lane Aaron website, hsperson.com, and take the test. She also has lots of research information. People are challenging. This is just a made-up trait. There's lots of really great research on the Lane Aaron site. Uh, my book, The Power of Sensitivity, is shows how people who are told there's something wrong with them are thriving now by using their sensitivity in a powerful way. Um, so there's just, and on my site, I have just lots of good information about coping techniques. And again, the, the, the HSP survival guide is how do you cope as a sensitive person? And that's from, um, that was about the first book. Well, I just want to thank you, Dr. Ted Zuff, for joining us today. And that got me thinking I'm going to put a pitch in for the next book with a focus on the gregarious, highly sensitive person and what their experience is in the world. Some of my colleagues written a book on the extroverted, highly sensitive person. And um, I mean, the books are just coming out like crazy now. I mean, um, like I think up to 2010, it was Elaine Aaron in my book. And now it seems like everybody's writing a book about some aspects of the trait, which is great. Because and, and people are writing it uh, are uh, 
Tracy Cooper is very good. He's written a book about the high sensation seeker. And there's a lot of really good books coming out now. Well, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. And I also want to thank you for being a pioneer in this field. Most welcome. And I think you're an excellent interviewer. And I really enjoyed doing this uh, interview. Thank you so much.